Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the birth of the SAS, that British Special Forces Unit that served with distinction in North Africa, was disbanded after the war, but is now at the heart, once again, of Britain's special forces. It's a story shrouded in myth, in legend. But it's a story we've covered before on this podcast. We've interviewed several great historians on this topic. One of whom is Ben McIntyre, who's joining me again on the podcast today, because he wrote the book on which the new TV hit series, Rogue Heroes, is based. A new dramatisation of the early years of the SAS. It's a fantastic bit of historical drama. People have been arguing about its authenticity. People, yet again, not quite getting the memo. The fact that it's there, dramatised. Lots of actors playing the parts, reciting script written by a contemporary writer means that it's not actually a historical document. It's not a textbook. So don't panic, folks. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's a wonderful imagining of the start of the SAS, which, yes, is rooted in great history, written by Ben McIntyre and others, but it's also a place where creativity is allowed to flourish, both the writing, which is fantastic, and the acting, which is great as well. Now, I'm going to ask Ben McIntyre about the show because it's based on his work. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But I really want to ask him about Robert Blair Maine, a.k.a. Paddy Maine. He ended the war as Lieutenant Colonel. He won three Distinguished Service Orders, highly decorated, found a member of the SAS. That followed a pre-war life of playing rugby for Ireland and the British Lions going on a South Africa tour, in which it was always said that he relaxed by wrecking hotels and fighting dockers. <laughs> he was brilliantly portrayed by Jack O'Connell in the TV series, who's created one of the most extraordinarily engaging characters I can think of in any British drama recently. But how much did that tell us about the original Paddy Main? I'm getting Ben McIntyre to talk me through the career of this extraordinary and very elusive man. Blair Main died, sadly, at just 40 in, in 1955 from a car crash in his native Newtonards in Northern Ireland. He's a figure that I've been obsessed with, really, since I first started making TV shows and came across him in my early 20s. The only man surviving from that time is Mike Sadler. He's now over 100 years old. I was lucky enough to interview him as well. You can hear that interview on the podcast if you look at the feed. I broadcast that a few days ago, so please go and have a listen to that. But in the meantime, here is the best-selling author, 
the fantastically nice Ben McIntyre. He's long been a friend. I'm so glad one of his books has been turned into such a thrilling drama. Here's Ben McIntyre talking about the early SES and Robert Blair Maine. Enjoy. Ben McIntyre, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. It's such a fun TV series, this, isn't it? Oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Dan. I loved it. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? But I don't have to. I'm not under contract to say that. And I think they've done an amazing job with, with SAS. And it's not a particularly easy one to do because so many people feel invested in the SAS. There is so much mythology surrounding the SAS that it's a tricky prospect in some ways. And I think what Steve Knight has done brilliantly is to kind of remain true to the spirit of the whole thing without trying to glamorise war or the SAS or the brutality of what was going on. Because actually, I mean, not all of your listeners would have got that far, but once you get to the end of the final episode, you realise that these people are being chewed up by war in some ways. It's not a particularly sort of dignifying or glorious escapade. It's actually incredibly damaging for everybody. And also, there is so much luck the idea that if you're looking for kind of superheroes in the past, people who could shape the course of nations and battles, you get the strong impression here, which I'm sure you had in your research, that, goodness me, we're all just flotsam on a great sea of luck. Some of our decisions work, some of them don't. We get away with it, and sometimes we don't get away with it. And you really see that in this story. Yeah, and there's that brilliant line that Steve Knight has crafted in it, where the main character, David Sterling, says most of war is complete chaos, Mostly, we don't know what's going on. It's all about accident and fate and luck or lack of it. It's so interesting, isn't it? And people often ask me, you know, how much did the SAS really make a difference in, in North Africa? And of course, that's an impossible question to answer. It's like any sort of counterfactual question is you have to ask, well, what would have happened if they hadn't been there? But it's pretty clear that they did degrade the sort of Axis air power in that part of North Africa at a critical moment. And perhaps even more importantly, they created a kind of morale-boosting operation that was hugely important. And Churchill was completely across that, as was Sterling. I mean, one of the interesting things about going through the archive was the number of photographs in there in which it is quite clear the SAS participants knew that they were going to be important figures in history and they are dressed for the part. They look like a rock band that have just come off stage. You know, they're wearing this kind of variety of headgear. They're wearing the bandoliers. They're touting all sorts of different kinds of weaponry because they know they're being photographed and they know they're part of posterity. And they also know that they're having an effect on the war and the fighting machine at a time when, of course, the war in North Africa was not going well. And this myth, this instant legend of the kind of phantom warriors coming in, these rogue heroes coming in from the desert and sort of destroying and then disappearing back, that had a hugely powerful effect, which, of course, is impossible to measure. I know that it's based on on your book, but what strikes me about the TV series is actually... It may or may not be perfectly accurate, but it's a combination of brilliant artists, both the actors and the writer, coming together with wonderful producers, and it's inspired by your work 
to produce something quite different, which is a piece of art, which isn't history. And, you know, you shouldn't be tested on it in your A-level or your undergrad, or but it's wonderful and there to be enjoyed. Like Turner's painting of Hannibal crossing the Alps. I mean, that's not what it actually looked like. Or like Shakespeare's Henry V, right? It's there to be enjoyed and stimulate and excite. And hopefully people go and read your book. But But you look at this and you don't think that's exactly what happened on those days, right? No, absolutely not. And nor should you, I think. I mean, I think there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about, you know, the accuracy of films and da 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 Look, if suddenly Steve had turned around and this unit was entirely American, yeah, you'd have a very good reason for kicking up a stink. But the truth is... This is a different art form. This is a completely different sort of operation that is going on here. And it's translating reality into something that is an emotional reality. It's not a literal reality. And it's so funny the people on Twitter sort of steaming around about, oh, is it a perfectly accurate portrayal of Paddy Mayne? It's not meant to be. It's a different thing that's going on here. And I think you're absolutely right. If it interests people in the history, and look, I would say this as the writer of the book on which it's based, to me, that series demands that you go and read the book. It's got that wonderful disclaimer at the beginning that says the things that seem most impossible in this story are mostly true. And that to me says, right, go and read the book, because if you want to find out what really happened, the book will tell you. And he's quite right about that, that I think that it sort of in a way embraces the difference between the genres in a completely honest way. Look, it has a rocking soundtrack. It's got ACDC as you're going into the desert. Of course, that's not, you know, they were going into the sounds of, well, they weren't going to the sounds of anything, actually. But if they were hearing anything, it was probably Vera Lynn. But I think that's a brilliant embracing of the idea that this isn't supposed to be a kind of documentary operation. It's a way of translating the past into the present in a way that lots more people can understand and get a handle on. And if there's one thing that you do brilliantly, Dan, on this podcast, and things that I try and do, it's to say to people, history isn't a dusty story of facts and figures and movements and great men necessarily. It's about character and personality and accident and emotion and all sorts of things that we in the 21st century can sort of get our heads around. And I think he's done a brilliant job of that. I completely agree. I love watching it. And I don't feel that my understanding of the Second World War is somehow being corrupted by it. All it has had me doing is walking around swearing a lot. I just, it's just <laughs> had me embrace my inner swearing. Your inner swearing. No, it's brilliant on that. Again, not entirely untrue to life, actually. I don't think there'd have been quite as much swearing by and in front of officers, but my goodness, I mean, the potty mouths were there from the beginning. I think that's exactly right. Look, and films have always done that. The screen has always done that. The moment the war was over, we saw a flood of black and white movies that were not literal representations of what was going on during the war. They were stories that allowed the tellers to tell them in a way that their audience could get an emotional grip on. The Longest Day is not a documentary. The Great Escape is miles from being a documentary. All those Colditz stories, they're not literal reality. They're something much more profound in some ways. They're broader in a way. But I mean, what's so interesting about the SAS Rogue Heroes series is that it's the demographic is very young. Perhaps that's unsurprising in some way. But, you know, we think of the war as being grandpa's war, that it's only going to be watched by sort of men over 60 in red trousers. That is not the case. That is not what's happened with this series. It's being watched by young people, not all of them male. I mean, it's a very interestingly broad audience. Lots of people of a sort of younger generation are thinking, "Mm, this is actually very interesting and stylish and strange and sort of unpredictable. 
I think those three adjectives are precisely correct. It's stylish, it's strange, unpredictable. It's a lovely piece of filmmaking. But as the historian, I certainly don't want to get into a debate about what's true and what isn't, but Paddy Main feels like he's coming out of this. He dominates the screen. I think that actor's portrayal of Paddy Main is actually one of the great performances and characters I've seen in British filmmaking in decades. Sometimes he is literally like Achilles in his tent, sort of in the desert. I mean, it's too brilliant sometimes. Let's talk about the real Paddy Main because I'm glad a new generation are being introduced to Blair Main because what an extraordinary character. He he would have won eternal renown even as a, a rugby player had the Second World War not happened. But tell me a little bit about him. He isn't quite as portrayed as a sort of a horny-handed son of the soil, is he, in the show. Tell me about the real Blair Main. No, that is slightly exaggerated. I mean, Paddy Main is a very, very complicated and still very controversial figure. You know, he is much debated, including elements of his story that some find very difficult, including his sexuality. I mean, there is good reason to believe that Paddy Main was probably a repressed homosexual and that part of his rage may have come from that. Now, that doesn't seem to me to be a terribly controversial thing to say these days, but there are people who find that anathema. So, yes, he's a complicated figure. He isn't quite the kind of working-class toughie that he's portrayed as in the film. He actually came from a really quite well-to-do Protestant middle-class family. He was sort of privately educated in, in Northern Ireland. I mean, he wasn't out of the same draw that David Sterling was out of. I mean, David Sterling was a proper full-blown aristocrat, really. And he did in some ways even more patrician than he is portrayed in the film. I mean, he was quite snobbish, old David Sterling, which doesn't really come out in the series. But Paddy Main is very, very complicated. You'll see as the series develops that Paddy changes over time during the war. And you'll see him develop as a character somewhat away from this kind of vulpine figure that he is in the first series. I mean, he becomes in some ways even more complicated. That explosive fury sometimes directed against his closest friends. I mean, that was the strange thing about Paddy Maine, is that he was an extraordinary warrior. He was utterly nerveless. He was able to inspire in other people levels of courage that they had no idea that they could tap. So in that way, he was an absolutely born leader. But if you got him at the wrong moment in the mess and he'd had six whiskeys too many, he was quite liable to pick you up and throw you into the fireplace because there was this uh, perceived slight that you wouldn't even have said. I mean, even his closest friends were very, very wary of Maine. There was a level of unexploded ordnance going on inside that very complicated character that lasted all of his very short life. I mean, Paddy Maine was one of those people, I think, who maybe he would have gone on to a great rugby career, but he was one of those people who I think probably could not survive in peacetime. He found it very difficult. And the latter part of his life is, in a way, very tragic, I think. I mean, he's one of those people who could never find rest. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the early SAS, particularly Paddy Main. More coming up. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, from History Hit, we talk about everything from what Queen Consort Camilla could learn from the Renaissance. Really, when we begin to look at Queen Consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways that women could have authority through their relationship with the king. 
to how you should never upstage Henry VIII. You'd have been a very unwise individual turning up to court, probably with a larger cod piece than the king, I suspect. From the real Matawaka, better known as Pocahontas. She's brought and presented to the king and queen as this shining example of what we could achieve. To how to tell someone to get lost. You could say, turd in your teeth. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, Want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year? Join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. He studies as a medic in Ireland? Well, I think originally he was a medic, but his career was as a lawyer, actually. I mean, he studied law. And he played rugby for Ireland and the British and Irish Lions. Yeah, famously. I mean, his exploits while on tour with the Lions are legend, but like most legend, largely true. I mean, at one point, he actually went out and shot a springbok, which he then dumped the corpse on the bed of one of his fellow players and then took it out again and left it outside the South African coach's door. I mean, he was pretty uncontrollable even then. But he was a brilliant rugby player. And the South Africans, and this is saying something, said they'd almost never met a man with his sort of visceral rage <laughs> on the pitch. I mean, that, that is quite terrifying. I think he would have lasted today about five minutes before the red card would have come out. I don't think he'd have been able to play today. 
Yeah, that's right. And he because he was an amateur boxing champion, I think, or certainly medalist, wasn't he? Well, he certainly boxed. I mean, actually, the champion of the SAS team was a man called Red Seekings, who is brilliantly played in the series, who was a brilliant boxer. I mean, again, another very unchained sort of personality. Then Blair Main ends up fighting initially the Vichy French in the Middle East. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So he distinguished himself, first of all, in sort of commando operations on the Litani River. I think he won his first DSO there. So he was already a pretty established soldier and sort of leader by the time he arrived in North Africa, which is part of why he had a kind of lingering animus towards the French, because he'd spent the first part of his war killing them. So that conflict with the French SAS troop as they come out is pretty close to life. I mean, Paddy Main was one of those people who was not above stereotyping entire nations. And again, that comes out too. And he was a poet. He was a poet. He wrote poetry and he read a lot of poetry and he could recite from memory a lot of A.E. Houseman and others, perhaps less fashionable today than they were then. There was an Irish soul in him. There was definitely a kind of deeper figure. And in a way, that was one of the things that drew him to Sterling. I mean, their relationship was very acrid, very conflictual a lot of the time, but they were not entirely unlike in character. Sterling himself had wanted to be an artist and had trained to be an artist and had painted in Paris and saw himself, you know, he used to go around in a beret and, you know, a smock trying to look like an artist, but failed utterly. You know, it didn't work for him. And I think that was part of his disappointment and, and fury. And it's clearly part of Paddy Main's story as well, is that there was a sort of softer soul inside this furious antagonistic figure. But there was somebody who was capable of great reflection and thought and of deep affection too. I mean, I think that his relationship with Owen McGonagall in the TV series is brilliantly done because there was a love going on there. And whether it was a sexual love or not is, of course, we don't know. And and it's none of our business in some ways. But I think it deals brilliantly with that. And I've tried in the book to deal with that in the same way. It's not a straightforward thing, but the death of Owen McGonagall had a very profound effect on Paddy Main. And sadly, the wonderful story about him being sort of found in a prison cell is possibly one where the myth is a bit shy of the mark. Is that right? Yes, possibly. That was one of the issues with trying to tell this story was that it is very encrusted in myth. I mean, there is a great deal of legend and many of those legends were retold by the participants themselves as fact. And so you then bump up against, which I'm sure you've had many times in your work, that you're dealing with memory and memory is such a fallible quality, really. You know, so David Sterling would tell stories of breaking into headquarters on his crutches and hiding them and so on. And... Is that true? Well, it's certainly he believed it was true and he told it so many times that he was convinced that it was true. Now, does that make it necessarily actually true? Well, possibly not. But, you know, that is what you get when you're dealing with oral history of this sort that then becomes written history. And in fact, Penny Main himself never propagated the idea that he'd been picked up in a prison by Sterling. He certainly was arrested and he undoubtedly thumped his senior officer. That is fact. Whether Sterling picked him up immediately after that is not quite clear. But it's a story that was told and retold so many times that it is part of the SAS story. We should say, as you developed in your book and the new series will show, Paddy Main consistently didn't get the VC, despite doing things that simply read like a Hollywood storyline, like just wandering about 
as everyone else is, you know, hiding in ditches, he's just sort of wandering about in open sight of the enemy, showing astonishing lack of regard for his own safety. And that he seems to do that all the time. Why do you think he never got the VC? Well, I'm among the group that thinks that he absolutely should have had a VC. And I'm in pretty distinguished company there. I mean, Montgomery himself recommended him for a VC. I think in the end, what happened was that Paddy was just too volatile. His reputation was just so extreme that I think there was probably an unwritten, unspoken feeling that he just couldn't be given this thing because he was just too wild. There is a sort of technical issue in all of this as well, which is that you needed to have two eyewitness reports to what had happened, and this related to a particular event that had taken place towards the end of the war, the actual episode for which he was recommended for the VC. My recollection is that there was only one witness and that this was a technical reason why he could not be awarded it. That looked to me like an excuse. One hesitates to say this. I think there may have been an element of homophobia to it as well. I think the stories of Paddy Main's sexuality had got out. They were known about and they were current at this time. And there may have been an element of that involved. Recently, there's been some criticism of Sterling. How central is is sort of Main to the SAS? I mean, is he really, in some ways, the true central protagonist of this story of the birth of the SAS? I think one has to be very wary of the revisionist stuff about Sterling. I mean, it's quite funny in a way because nobody was ever claiming that Sterling was some kind of saint. I mean, he's clearly an extremely flawed character. And the idea that somehow, you know, knocking him down as a phony major or whatever, I mean, seems a bit excessive to me. I think most sensible accounts of this regiment give equal credit, if that's the right word, to Sterling to Paddy Main and also to Jock Lewis. I mean, Jock Lewis was absolutely central to the foundation of this. I mean, he was in many ways the original architect of it. So I think it took a combination, and we're so quick, aren't we, these days to apportion blame or credit to one person. It's almost as if history has become sort of moral accountancy in some ways, that we have to go back and if X is responsible, then Y cannot be responsible. Or if X gets credit, then Y cannot also be credited with it. And it's the same way with all sorts of movements in history. You know, the, the SAS is a good thing or a bad thing. It can't be a combination of good things and bad things. And I think the SAS was born through a combination of Sterling's connections and determination, Jock Lewis's rigid cleverness and his willingness to sort of think about how you were actually going to go about blowing up planes in the desert. I mean, he invented the Lewis bomb. And Paddy Main's feral ability to lead from the front and to do things and inspire others to do things that were not only not sensible, they were at times extremely bonkers. But I think it is quite possible for the SAS to have been born out of all these three things. And I think to make it into a sort of zero-sum game is a bit mad, actually. For people that have enjoyed and binged the whole series, like me, tell us, as the man who did the history that it's based on, what are some of the maddest things in it that are, in fact, reasonably true? Well, there's that moment when... Paddy Main spots that, and this is a bit of a plot spoiler, but spots a party taking place in the mess hut on one of the airstrips. And there are Italian and German soldiers sitting there drinking and listening to the gramophone records. And he really did just kick the door open with two other soldiers with Tommy guns and simply 
killed a lot of them. I mean, some consider it to have been extremely cold-blooded. Even Sterling was deeply shocked by that episode. I mean, I found, it had never been published before, but I found an account written by Sterling in later life in which he said that was a really bad moment. I mean, Paddy went completely over the top there. But actually, in some ways, the incident was even more sort of chaotic and carnage than it appears on screen. I mean, that was absolutely true. And the competition between Sterling and Maine was absolutely right. I mean, they became completely locked into this sort of personal struggle over who was going to blow up more stuff. Again, the, the first parachute jump that Sterling and Jock Lewis made, I mean, it looks extraordinary where the two of them simply tie their release cords to the legs of the chairs inside the wrong kind of plane. It was a postal plane. It wasn't a parachute plane. And simply jump out of the door. That is true. That absolutely happened. And Sterling's parachute caught on the tail fin and down he plummeted at roughly four times the recommended speed. Amazing that he survived it. So all of those things are true. But then it seems to me that the things that are not strictly factual are perfectly acceptable too. I mean, you know, there is this love affair with a French spy that takes place at the heart of the story. Did it happen? I strongly doubt it. Does it add hugely to the pleasure and fun and engagement of the story? Absolutely. So that's just fine with me. I'm glad to hear there's going to be a second series. Ben, if people wish to read the history that all this is based on, how can they do that? Well, it's very, very simple. They go to the best bookshops and buy a copy of SAS Rogue Heroes. It's delightful to see that it's having a second life, this book. It's been absolutely wonderful, the power of television, to watch a whole new readership sort of picking up on this. And I think, as I said before, I do think that the series really asks you, if you're interested in this subject, go and have a look. Go and take a look at not just my book. There are other books about this subject. It's a wonderful, colourful history, and it'll be fascinating to see what they do with season two and three and going forwards. I found the depiction of Cairo fascinating. I've talked to lots of veterans who do talk about Cairo. It's, it's the thing, as you know, it's hardest to get the veterans to talk about because, you know, it's sex and it's venereal disease and it's drinking. It's just, I like to push and then they, I get pushed back and so you can't. But they do occasionally say it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, yeah, I think it's, I, I think so I found it. that engaging as well. But you touch on a very important subject there, Dan, because actually the fun side of war is something that is very difficult to write about. And the SAS is part of this story. Part of wartime is incredibly exciting and fun and young and glamorous and unleashed. And that goes for life in Cairo as well. You know, the wartime world revolving around Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo was enormously good fun. And actually, I was very delighted to see Anthony Beaver, for whom I have huge respect, doing a review of Rogue Heroes the other day, in which he, and he knows a lot about wartime Cairo, saying that he felt that the whole series had sort of captured something very elemental in that story. But I think it is also part of war. It is such a lurid, violent, stressful thing, combat, that of course people outside of those moments would seek relief and pleasure and release. And that happens in all sorts of different ways. They didn't all curl up with a book of poetry. Thank you, Ben. I am going to go and curl up with a book of history written by you. So thank you very much, <laughs> dude, for coming back on this podcast. You've been such a friend to us over the years. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Dan. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat 
rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.